Hello, welcome to the University of Brighton podcast. I'm Richard Newman. This is the podcast which talks to academics, staff and students at the university and goes into depth about some of their work. It's Black History Month and to mark that we've got a couple of special episodes lined up. Next week we'll be talking to Dr Marlon Moncrief about expanding support to teach black history in schools and his history of black British cyclist work. But this week I'm joined by Dr Christian Hogsberg, lecturer in critical history and politics. He works specifically on Caribbean history the black experience of the British Empire and how race and empire impacted on British identity, politics, society and culture. But Christian, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. Really appreciate your time. Thank you, Richard, for the opportunity. Yeah. Uh, so shall we talk about, let's get to know you a little bit first, I think. So can you take us on a sort of whistle-stop tour of your career so far? Yeah, thanks. Um, yeah, I've, I've only been at Brighton um, a couple of years. Um, I came in 2018. So before that, I did um, my undergraduate degree at Leeds University, um, then did an MA and PhD at York um, University. Um, then I've taught part-time in um, various places, um, University College London, um, Leeds uh, Met, Metropolitan University, now Leeds Beckett University, many years, and, and, and also, yeah, um, worked as, uh, as an administrator for the Centre of African Studies at um, University of Leeds. So I've had, um, yeah, so it was a range, but then, yeah, um, yeah, I was very lucky, yeah, to, yeah, um, become a lecturer in history here, yeah. Yeah, and the areas that you've chosen to specialise in, have they always been something that quite close to your heart? Where does that interest come from? Thanks, yeah. Um, no, I mean, traditionally, yeah, school, even in my undergraduate degree, you don't really do much of um, uh, the Caribbean uh, in general or slavery um, in particular. I did do one course um, at Leeds University on the, on the British Empire. Um, but I suppose for, for me, it was really um, d- discovering the work of um, C.L.R. James, who's a great uh, black uh, Trinidadian Marxist historian. He, uh, he wrote a classic history of the Haitian Revolution called The Black Jacobins. Um, in 1938, and really reading that book um, was really quite transformative. I was very, yeah, interested in how James came to write that, that, that work in the 30s when he was in Britain. Um, and, and so really that, that really opened up a whole world for me really about the Caribbean, about black British history. And I sort of went on a journey really, but I've never really, yes, yeah, stopped, stopped uh, left really ever since then really, it, you know, suddenly you, you embark on a great, a great sense that actually, you know, Caribbean history and black British history are both completely kind of generally speaking, kind of quite unknown hidden histories for those coming from a traditional um, academic background, but you get the sense of this so, uh, so much, so much work uh, there that's, that, that needs to be done in some ways still, but in, in sense, it, it's so fascinating and rich in its own history that you just, um, and so, yeah, that, that then took me to York um, and to, yeah, to do an MA, and then I did a PhD on, on yeah, how James came to write Black Jacobins. Um, in, in the third of that, that was basically my PhD, uh, cool. published in 2014 as a, a monograph. 
Yeah, we'll, we'll, we're going to talk a bit more about that, I think, um, a little bit later, the Black Jacobins and, and, and why, why it sort of captured you and, and why other people should read it as well. It's, it's, it's Black History Month at the moment, and you know, it feels like a, a poignant one this year because of the, you know, the rise of the Black Lives Matter movement, um, which has been, it's been a really big year for that. And I think maybe the world is, is taking this a little bit more seriously now, especially speaking as a white man, there's a desire to learn more about Black history, I think, in general. Do you think you have seen a change in that or the starting the start of a change yeah i think that's i think i think so i think it's, it has been very um hopeful incredibly inspiring really the black lives matter movement ever since um it you know it first it erupted more back in sort of 2016 i think towards the end of the obama presidency um and what that's meant um really i mean there's, there was a kind of an obama effect i think that happened in 2008 uh, where suddenly a whole load of people who hadn't taken race uh, particularly seriously suddenly had to wake up for the fact you've got a black president of the United States. Well, what's, where did that come from? So it was one of the periodic moments when suddenly black history, in a sense, does starts to come to the fore on a more institutional basis and starts to get more recognition just for the fact of Obama's presidency. But I think you're right, the Black Lives Matter movement in particular as a global anti-racist movement has again transformed things and you have to be hopeful I think that you know it will lay the potential for more institutional support for uh yeah uh in terms of around black history um in Britain in, in, in black history in, in general but there, there just hasn't been in the past it's a hidden history uh, for too long and I think um I think I think over the last decade or so we've slowly seen things changing I mean the you know the, the important um you know the stuff from BBC, David Olasoga's um, work and his documentaries, um, for example, just and you know other other such manifestations. It shows that there's now this moment of change that's opened up, and I think people have to you know every everyone uh, that wants to live in a more uh, equal uh, society, I think, has to use this moment to try and really um, yeah, yeah make the most of it. And you teach on the globalization history and identity module. Within that, um, one of the main focuses is of the, the making of the Black Atlantic. Can you talk to us a bit more about that? Yeah, no, it's a fantastic privilege to be able to teach, actually teach a, a course on, on race and slavery in the Atlantic world. Just again, because as I mentioned, when I, I was doing my undergraduate degree, that such, such modules are very rare, really. And, and now again increasingly most most history departments now do offer such courses um but again that's uh that's something new so it's a privilege to teach on or teach on such a module and um it really is it, yeah as you say it's incredibly timely in, in, uh course to be teaching on right now um this year um when black history has become a like it's kind of a very political battle in many ways in the in terms of a kind of culture wars which people talk about that are going on um there's a you know it's always had that kind of political edge to it there's always been arguments between those who used to be called i suppose a sort of black armband uh, approach versus the white blindfold approach um and you know slowly um slowly you know i, th I think this has more become a more wider sense that actually this this his, this kind of history is just really critical to both explain british history uh, explaining world history it's not um you know something that should be exclusive it's something that should be taught uh and integrated across the you know across the curriculum in you know in general and particularly at a school level i think these are um 
these are this has become a sense that actually these this is this is now um you know it shouldn't actually be the, the on one level the political issue it, it is yeah why do you think it is that children teenagers mm. you know kids mm. in school don't learn about race about slavery in school about you know the the impact of mm. the british empire i mean is it is it is it kind of embarrassment is it because we it feels like an, there's not a desire to tackle these things head on that it, mm. despite the fact that you we all grow up learning about the you know, no, ancient Egypt. Mm. Yeah, no, in part, I think in general terms, I, th- I think there's a, um, any nation state in general likes its, uh, to, in terms of its education system, um, likes to teach a kind of history that's going to be loosely a kind of patriotic history in general, I, I think. Um, so, for example, we learn in British history, uh, you know, traditionally about, as you say, you know, um, other things that, have happened so long ago, but whatever. Uh, or, or more likely, you learn about um, you know Nazi Germany or Stalinist Russia or Jim Crow in the American South, perhaps if you're lucky. If you're lucky, mm. um, the struggle for civil rights there. But you don't look at the darker side of British history in terms of empire, in terms of slavery, in terms of racism in Britain. So I think I think in general, those are the general parameters. I think what's interesting is. You know, historically, there would have been a very um, pro uh, empire would have figured on the on the on the school curriculums while the empire you know existed and would have said hi. If we go back hundred years or so, or so and we look at the education that children would have had then in Britain, they would have had a lot about the empire and they would have had a very uh, it would have been very crap, but it would have been obviously a very very proud stuff. I think what's happened now is that empires. Dis- disappeared, uh, you know, ever since the decline of the empire. So it's come off a of curriculum. So we just don't talk about it. So we don't learn about it at all. So mm. they don't get the kind of crude uh, pro-imperialist propaganda that used that used to exist. But on the same side, they just don't haven't had anything. And now there's a sense that right, you need to uh, actually, te- you know, uh, should teach British Empire, uh, teach teach the great crimes of British Empire, slavery being the most, most preeminent of them. Um, but there's a, obviously a battle, a political battle over exactly how how much the you know any kind of government is going to allow that to explore. Final point I would make here. I mean, I should say. I mean, not in Germany, because of Nazism, because that was you know such as supreme barbarism and evil. German Germany has actually you know does teach in terms of its uh, in terms of uh, school kids and so on it does teach rightly about 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 that history it does face up to that moment of, of its past you could argue that perhaps it doesn't face up to older forms of, of German colonial history in terms of Africa and so on still that's still a battle to be had but I think in terms of Britain when you come to you know our the dark sides of our past we, we still have this uh, you know, disavow this refusal to really want to face up to that reality. And so in that sense, I think there is a, um, yeah, I think there's still a lot more work. There's still a, there's still a um, important uh, struggle to be had around that. Yeah. Yeah. You mentioned that obviously it's, it's impacted a lot by politics and um, I mean, it almost feels like, you know, we've, I'm uh, I'm in my sort of approaching around mid thirties, and I, I, you know, we just don't know enough of that kind of stuff from when you from when you're at school. It feels like it's such a basic thing to have learned about. It's almost like um, a lot of stuff is censored and and maybe uh, edited in terms of the history that we learn. So, I mean, we saw in the summer the statue of Edward Colston thrown into a river in mm. in Bristol, for example, a slave trader. Yet still, there were different high profile views in politics about whether that was the right thing to do in terms of I think 
politicians defending it, saying it, we shouldn't be lying about our history, but a statue isn't usually a symbol of something which is, which is actually deplorable, is it? Yeah, absolutely. It's a, um, it was a glorify, yeah, the statues are there to glorify uh, figures and, 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 and sanitize them and try and say these are the great um, and the good of, of our society. Um, and, you know, just as the, you know, the Confederate statues in the US were put up at the time of Jim Crow when they were highly, uh, you know, when you had these highly racist regimes of white supremacy uh, in existence. So, you know, the Colston statue and stuff would have been put up at a time when British Empire, um, you know, was at its height and these people were accepted. I mean, um, I, I suppose um, as, as what it's done, I think what's, what's fantastic is that, you know, the Black Lives Matter movement has won the, these victories has questioned uh, a whole a whole load of this, the architecture, the infrastructure of our society, um, and symbolically around statues and so on. That have been, but are symbolic of, of this darker side of our history, slavery and empire and so on. I mean, one thing I suppose that's striking when you start reading and learning about imperial history and so on, you see just how uh, much of how, how how it goes beyond statues in one level. I mean, whole city, whole cities, Bristol, Liverpool. Could not have would not have existed and been the kind of cities they were unless you'd had the highly their, their involvement in the highly profitable um, slave trade. This is true for all the you know port cities uh, really of, of this country, but but even other places. I mean, even Brighton, for example, which is not obviously was not a slaving port, was not an obvious city and tied tied up with 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 slavery. There were nonetheless uh, people who lived in Brighton um, who were uh, slave slaveholders who benefited from slavery who claimed compensation money when slavery ended. Um, and, and they, you know, and so, part, you know, there's a connection. I mean, there's important colleagues you should speak to at Brighton, um, for example, Anita Ruprecht, um, a team around her who have done a lot more work on this than me. But nonetheless, you know, if even places that you don't think of, Bristol, obvious, you know, you could say slave port, but in fact, you know, it permeates so much more widely across the whole of British society. You can find local angles to this story that have been hidden um, if, everywhere you look. Yeah. Mm, yeah. Um, obviously, having to be careful about being too partisan in terms of my own politics here as presenter, but over recent years, we've also had the Windrush scandal too. Um, do, you, do you think there will be a, a change when we accurately look back at the history of the British Empire, colonialism, you know, really decolonizing the curriculum? Do you think we are going to... It, how long is that going to take to to really change the way that that people learn in this country? Mm. It's uh, as I mentioned, it's always going to be a battleground. I mean, we, Jeremy Corbyn in the um, last general election did go into that election uh, promising to have a, um, a a reform of of these kind of questions and actually probably bring um, questions of um, empire and actually onto onto the curriculum um, and. I don't know. I don't know whether how how committed um, someone like Keir Starmer would be to that, or how li- how likely it is. I, I think it's very. I think it, I'm, I think I'm, I'm the present government. I think it's going to be very slow going. I think there's going to be a battle. I think you've still got so much in an attempt to, um, you know, uh, to to try and instead have a, have a kind of mythical kind of patriotic history where we where we where we um, where we don't look actually where we push a kind of nationalist mythology rather than a proper facing up to historical reality. One, it's interesting though, I mean, just on, uh, just quickly, I came across a, yeah, there's a quote from um, Winston Churchill, who's um, Boris Johnson's hero, obviously, about this. And he was quite open. I'll just read this little quote. This is what he said to um, 
West Indian um, sugar planters in the 1930s at a banquet. And he said, our possession of the West Indies, like that of India, gave us the strength, the support, but especially the capital, the wealth, at a time when no other European nation possessed such a reserve, which enabled us to come through the great struggle of the Napoleonic Wars, the keen competition of the 18th and 19th centuries, and enabled us to lay the foundation of that commercial and financial leadership which enabled us to make our great position in the world. So that's 1939. So there's a sense that, you know, for people like Churchill, who A, a historian, B, someone who's a big empire builder in his own right, he understood the importance of uh, the West Indies, of the Caribbean, of slavery, to uh, British industrial capitalism and to the, um, to, you know, to the fact that the British Empire could become the most, you know, powerful empire in the world at one point. He understood all that. And it's just interesting how, if that's then the historical reality, of the thing, why then? Um, <laughs> why then is then not a proper, uh, more wider sense? If that, you know, of okay, right? Why can't we actually teach this and actually think about what it means and actually give British uh, uh, kids growing up actually a kind of um, actually a kind of education which will actually help them to better understand Britain's place in the world um, and, and 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 British history by actually properly teaching about, uh, about the wealth that was created off the backs of the forced labour of, of enslaved Africans. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Um, we're going to come back to a bit of politics in, in a bit with the US election in terms of this academic year, though. Um, things have changed a lot because of COVID and the course, of course, uh, um, across the university, courses would have had to have changed with the move to remote teaching. How have you found everything and how, has things, how have things changed? Thanks. Yes, it's still adjusting to this uh, new reality. Um, busy uh, recording, yeah, online lectures and uh, teaching starts this week um, again online. So huge challenges and difficulties and and so on. I'm lucky in a way, but I'm you know teaching personally. I'm going to be able to do my teaching this semester at least online. Um, uh, so I'm lucky in that sense. I know there's other uh, colleagues who 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 are. Uh, perhaps less lucky but I mean one in terms of a course in terms of a module um, uh, I think um, I, th I think one change we have done and it reflects this actually Black Lives Matter movement and the um, and the and, and the, the shift to going online is that we've had to re-design um, a lot of uh, module previously you know you'd set students books to read that, that were on the, in the library and so on and you'd get you'd get you'd give them books now obviously things have to be all readings had to be digitalized so we've had to look for more shorter journal articles which are more easily accessible you know to to read on online rather than setting books which are a bit more difficult uh, than in the past they, they can they can get to so it, what that's allowed us to do is actually redesign parts of the module so for example one of the things that students i think have brought up as part of the decolonizing curriculum initiative is they want to learn more about um, British aspects of slavery um, and so on so we and, and, and British uh, slave revolt revolts that took place in British Caribbean against slavery these are very kind of hidden parts of British history so for example we brought in to play much more things like um, the 1816 Bussa rebellion uh, in, in Barbados um, which is yeah one of the uh, yeah one of one of the yeah, one of the famous, well, that's, that's not very well known, but a kind of very important uh, slave revolt, which took place, yeah, um, uh, just, you know, after, after slave, the slave trade had been abolished, and when supposedly um, uh, slave owners were trying to make slavery um, 
less brutal and barbaric. So if you say the, the slaves they had stopped didn't, didn't die so fast. Um, but actually, you start to get a sense that actually emancipation's in the air, um, but actually perhaps they think, put, you know, after the Haitian Revolution, perhaps you can win, uh, win, win the end of slavery. And so it's, it's, it's a, um, a, a rebellion, for example, that you just wouldn't, yeah, but it but isn't, isn't so well known about. We're actually we're able to kind of, for example, bring on to the module, module this year. Yeah. And um, in terms of if there's a student thinking about studying at the University of Brighton um, and coming to study in some of the areas that, that you teach on, what would you say that is about Brighton that maybe would uh, set it apart and, um, and would uh, tempt them to come here? Yeah, I would say that, I mean, as I said, I've, I've, I've been here two years, but I think before, before that, I knew about Brighton um, partly because of the work around uh, reparative histories of race and resistance that have been done by, by colleagues in, in my, my uh, school, humanities school, people like Anita Ruprecht and Kathy Bergen and, and John Watson and, and so on. So I think Brighton always had this, uh, has had a long-standing uh, degree that's uh, a strong-standing programme that's actually always taken race incredibly seriously over, over decades. And I think that that's kind of marked it aside from some of the other departments I mentioned, like, um, around the place where perhaps race is just something they're kind of now bringing into their curriculum and taking seriously uh, now. So I think that would be one thing to point to, which relates directly to sort of my sort of teaching. In general, I think, uh, I mean, I think Brighton is and sort of the humanities program, which is what I know best, you know, it's distinctive for its, um, the fact we have quite um, small groups of teaching, uh, size of seminars. So like 12 or so students in each seminar, that's, compared to other institutions I've taught at, where you've had um, seminar sizes of you know, 25 or so on into one group, that's a, that's a massive shift and allows, uh, I think, a much better uh, learning experience for students. Um, I think also the final thing I'd say that's distinctive, I think, about Brighton is, is the sense that you actually, you know, it comes out of a tradition around kind of, you know, cultural studies, I guess, but, but a kind of sense of interdisciplinarity uh, to the um, program, uh, which again has, is something that's off that makes it quite distinctive. You know, we students coming to do humanities at Brighton um, are introduced to um, literature, they're introduced to philosophy, they're introduced to politics, they're introduced to history, um, uh, and uh, and and also um, and and so I think that kind of breadth that you get actually as a first year student alongside the disciplinary specialisms which other institutions tend to prioritise, actually means that you have a much richer overall sense of, 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 of um, not only your discipline, but a wider sense of the humanities, but also your, um, the fact that, you know, you are a citizen in a wider society as well. Um, I think that's, that, that's actually that kind of critical humanist kind of uh, education uh, is again something worth worth holding on to. It's something Brighton's done, and I think it makes it again not not totally unique, but I think quite quite relatively distinctive. I think um, at a time when that kind of model of education is 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 uh, is being threatened. And mm-hmm. um, let's return to some of your research and the the book, the Black Jacobins. I, mm-hmm. I'd like to ask you, what, why was that such a strong pull for you in terms of your research early mm-hmm. on? Thanks. Well, I think. People should, people should read it for themselves. I think it's, uh, I mean, A, it's, it's about the Haitian Revolution. So it's, uh, it's uh, an area of history, a fantastic, epic, revolutionary struggle that's inspiring. I mean, it 
created um, the first sort of independent um, black republic um, outside of Africa. So it's an important post-colonial revolution. It's a slavery liberation struggle. It was one of the first, you know, uh, it led to the, you know, the, the French empire um, abolishing slavery, uh, slavery throughout its empire um, within just sort of three years of the Haitian revolution erupting in 1791 um, and forced the British to end its participation in the slave trade in 1807, just three years after um, the Haitian revolution's end, uh, victory and, and declaration of independence in 1804. So it's important historically and it's a, so it's a fascinating, you know, uh, subject in its own right. But C.L.R. James, he was a great writer, you know, he was a uh, one of the pioneering West Indian novelists. So he brings to his historical writing a kind of um, beauty uh, and uh, to writing, which which makes it a kind of almost like reading um, a historical novel or something. I mean, it's been described um, by one historian, Robert, Robert Hill, as the kind of warm piece of the Caribbean, a bit like Tolstoy's a warm peace, which is about you know Russian struggle against Napoleon um, uh, in 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 uh, eighteen eighteen twelve. Uh, it's it's from that period. Um, it's 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 the defeat of Napoleon's armies, um, but by a black rebel slave army led by a great one of the greatest you know um, generals ever, Toussaint Louverture. So it's just such a fantastic subject, so rich, uh, so. Uh, important historically and yet it's so beautifully written and again I think it, throughout it I mean because C.L.R. James was a, um, a a Marxist he was he was also basing his uh, writing on 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 history on sort of a, a tradition a greater tradition of sort of writing about revolutions um, going back to write uh, certain historians of the French Revolution but also so historians of Russian Revolution like Leon Trotsky he was he was he was basing a tradition of writing about revolutions as a revolutionary and I think that gives it a classic history um, because of the sheer you know passion that goes into the writing of that history so I think I think for all those things it makes it quite a unique book on on so many levels and it's something that again people if people haven't read it and want to try and get into reading about slavery want to get into about reading um, about the Caribbean there's no better starting place I would say than, than C.L.R. James's uh, the Black Jacobins. Hmm, sounds good. Um, and then to, to to talk about another bit of your research, Ryan, it's really interesting because there are parallels here between uh, what we've seen in the Black Lives Matter movement this year. Uh, talking about anti-apartheid, and you've written about hmm. what was hmm. supposed to be a, a, a cricket tour of the South African hmm. team to, hmm. to England in, in 1970. It followed a, a similar tour for the rugby union team, the Springboks, which was, you know, as a bit ugly and dominated by by protests can you paint a picture of what was going on back then because then we can sort of circle back to what we may have seen in the u.s recently with the um with basketball's nba mm. as well before i should before i do that i mean i'd like to say there's a kind of connection to clr james clr james is also a great writer on uh, cricket he wrote a book called beyond the boundary he was a great cultural history of west indian cricket and i suppose it's through in a way, therefore, that's what got me onto thinking about this question of the Stop the 70 tour on one level, because it's, you know, that was uh, a great campaign movement uh, of anti-apartheid protest, which was stopping a cricket tour. But I suppose my interest in race and, and cricket um, went further back, if you like. That's how I kind of came to this topic. Uh, so I think the, um, yeah, the, the 
there was prehistory of, of this around the fact that, you know, you have South African teams representing apartheid, uh, cricket teams, uh, rugby teams, uh, all white, of course, uh, in their teams and representing a regime based on, you know, barbaric kind of white supremacy, the apartheid South African regime, coming and touring England in the 50s and 60s, and nothing, you know, very much is said. But yet there was uh, the start earlier this year, um, the start of uh, campaigns against this. Um, there was something called a campaign against racial discrimination in sports and so on. Um, and then the anti-apartheid movement took it up. So by the 60s, you started to get little protests taking place outside of um, outside the grounds whenever you had the Springboks with rugby team either touring or cricket team playing. Um, but what you get in 19... Yeah, by 68, obviously, with the great, uh, you know, wider, <laughs> wider uh, year of revolution that represented, you know, symbolised by, you know, say, the Mexico Olympics, uh, John Carlos, Tommy Smith raising their fists at uh, black American athletes there. You start to get... Um, a much more sense that actually there's going to be, we need to take much more radical direct action, um, non, non-violent direct action to protest the, the coming tour and actually stop the, the 1970 um, South African cricket tour from taking place. So that's why the Stop the 70 tour gets formed. But before they play, it's, um, you get a, a, this tour of the Springboks, rugby side from 69, winter 69 into the spring of 1960. And so the, the activists, the campaigners, um, led by uh, Peter Hayne at the time, um, they decide, right, this is a perfect opportunity to have a trial run, to try and try out the kind of protests, the kind of pitch invasions, the kind of direct action that we think is necessary to stop the actual 1970 tour taking place. So, you know, there's this tremendous movement which involves about 50,000 people, you know, huge demonstrations. I mean, the biggest, I think, was in Ireland with 10,000 people marching in Dublin. Um, but huge demonstration often outside towns where the box are playing, as well as radical students are deciding to actually try and stop the games themselves, running onto the pitches and, and doing all, all whatever they can to try and stop the matches. And it, and it, and it creates a huge political <laughs> debate, a bit like as, you know, the Black Lives Matter movement at the time. There's lots of the fascinating parallels between the two, in the sense of mass anti-racist movement involving black and white together. And, and they successfully, yeah, they made the, the Springboks tour an absolute uh, sort of nightmare thing, but they put sports coverage from being on the back pages of newspapers onto the front pages. They created this wider political debate around race, uh, around racism, and, and made, ultimately, they, they, they won uh, an important victory, an important anti-racist victory 50 years ago in 1970. Yeah. The cancellation of the tour, yeah. Yeah, so, so 50 years since then, and, and in, a, in a smaller way, I mean, yeah. much smaller way, this summer we've seen sporting events postponed in the US in, in basketball's NBA in protest at the shooting mm-hmm. of Jacob Blake. And that's actually the players and the staff who are making that decision instead. They weren't going to stand for it. And um, it's much more smaller scale, but like this is, you know, these are professionals taking it into their own hands instead. And there was lots of discussion about whether we may see a bit more of that um, in the future. Um, and we don't even know if that might have been a bit more escalated when, if this wasn't the world of, if we weren't in dealing with COVID-19 and fans mm. were being allowed to, mm. to, to attend sporting fixtures. Do you think you could see if, in a situation where things go back to normal, fans are allowed in, um, in sporting venues, things like this are still going on. Do you think we could end up seeing uh, a repeat of uh, what happened 50 years ago, perhaps? I think there already are um, important parallels. I mean, back in the, 
you know, the way that sports symbolize stuff. So, for example, back in the 60s, um, there was, you know, South African sport um, got attention, partly because there were key black uh, sports players um, who, who, uh, who couldn't play um, either against South Africa, not they couldn't play for South Africa, but they, you know, um, Basil Dolivero is the most famous ex example of this, really, the cricketer who was born in South Africa, but because of the colour of his skin, he couldn't play for them, could, play, could qualify to play for England, but wasn't allowed. The African regime couldn't allow him to represent England and, and come and play against them. And this, although Dolivero wasn't a political figure, you know, that in many ways was just seen as, you know, this cut against the um, British uh, notions of, of fair play and, and what was not cricket and so on. It, it, even among uh, fairly conservative opinion could see there was a problem here uh, in a way they previously wouldn't have been alerted to. So, the, the, you know, I think that in a sense, you know, that does correspond to previous thing we've seen with, um, you know, Colin Copernic taking the knee, how that's uh, how that's become a symbol within the Black Lives Matter movement. I think, in fact, you know, Lewis Hamilton, I think you've had a number of symbolically very uh, sports teams themselves have taken a stand. I mean, even, you know, cricketers taking the knee, West Indies versus England, I was so struck by that, that's something Cyril or Jones would have, would have loved. But I think, so even though you haven't had spectators there, nonetheless, on the field, there's, um, sports players themselves have made their, have, have taken the kind of stand um, you mentioned. So I think that's, you know, that's very hopeful and inspiring, yeah. While we're talking about the US, we just quickly touch on the, the upcoming presidential election. Here we are talking in a week where Donald Trump has been in hospital, returned to the White House, starts testing positive for COVID-19. It's going to be a fascinating run up to the election at the start of November. And before this, Trump was behind in the polls to Joe Biden. And the campaigning has all been around the backdrop of, of the Black Lives Matter movement. How much do you think it's, um, it's impacted things there? I mean, was, I think this is the thing. I mean, there's Black Lives Matter has given great hope to people in terms of the US election. There's a real hope that actually with this movement and the wider sympathy it had among white Americans uh, in general, I think what you've had inevitably there's been a, a, this racist um, backlash taking place that Trump has tried to, um, and obviously he's kind, of, he's kind of engineering it now. I mean, it's incredible, the dangerous moment, I think, that we're, we're in in terms of the US election. Trump is is not just refusing to kind of condemn sort of white supremacists who have been on the streets against the Black Lives Matter movement, but kind of almost kind of encouraging them continually um, means that this is, yeah, a very, very dangerous time. And, and a Trump second term would be, you know, it doesn't really bear thinking about. None, nonetheless, I think we have to remember that, you know, the Black Lives Matter movement started under Obama. It was Obama's failure to really do very much at all for black Americans that led to actually changing structural at all about American racism. But, and the fact is, Joe Biden is not uh, really, prom you know, he's not, he's not inspiring. He's not going to promise anything to, to do anything for them either in terms of structural racism in the US either. So I, I, but I fear that, yeah, it's, it's I, I fear that, you know, I've, I've, and uh, one thing that could have changed things, I think, you know, would have been a, a Sanders uh, you know, run against against Trump. I think that could have, um, if he'd had the Democratic nomination. Uh, but I just, I just fear that, unfortunately, you know, Trump could could yet still win despite the um, precisely because of uh, the limitations of, of Biden to really tap into both supporting the Black Lives Matter movement and 
um, also on the importance of kind of um, really uh, you talking about other wider issues, um, effectively, such as the issues that Sanders was raising around social class in the US, which could have been a way to undermine Trump. Yeah, I, I, I mean, these are two not particularly young men. Um, and uh, and if, if, if Biden yeah. was, to, was, was, was to get in for, uh, you know, there's, there's the assumption that possibly his, his running mate Kamala Harris would probably go for that, um, mm. go again in, mm. in four years' time. So that's, is that potentially yeah. the, the sort of light in terms of that argument that we were just talking about, about maybe Obama didn't do much for black people in terms of changing things. So would Kamala Harris maybe be that person to help move that on? Is she a bit of a light at the end of the tunnel, potentially? Well, it would certainly be, it would certainly be again, an important um, symbolic thing to have a, you know, a, a black woman uh, president would be, uh, you know, again, a, a symbolically a very important uh, thing in, in against racism in, in, in one level. Um, I just fear, though, that again, politically, I just I, I think it's ultimately politics does matter. And I think there, personally, I, I think the only things that are really going to change things is what, what happens to actual pressure in terms of a movement, a social movement from below here. And I, I think it would just depend whether there was such a movement from below uh, that would actually... Um, be propelling her to forcing her to make changes. Um, for example, doing something about the mass incarceration of Black Americans in in the, in the prison system. Um, doing something seriously about uh, you know about the police and, and forcing it to to face up to their horrendous institutional racism. I think I think these are things that are only going to come about from a social movement from below. So I think everything would depend on what the position of that movement was. Perhaps there's some if Biden wins, but these are big ifs. All, it's all I'd say. These are big ifs. First of all, you'd need Biden to win. So I just think I just think there's a long way to go before you even get to that tiny uh, tiny moment, which might be some kind of light at the end of the tunnel. We're in a very dark place right now, and so I just think, yeah. Yeah. Uh, fi- yeah. Finally, on this, um, before we end, he, he's beaten the odds before. Could things get toxic if Donald Trump is re-elected? Mm, I think it's incredibly dangerous, and I think obviously the, you know, the fact he's he's trying to galvanise his own movement on the streets um, from below to help him, um, you know, help him win this election, um, or, or whatever. I, th- I think there's incredibly yeah dangerous moment in in terms of history. Uh, where we are now yeah it's yeah. it's going to be quite the run-up isn't it and uh, we'll have to wait and see what happens it's going to be yeah. a fascinating four weeks or so um right we end each podcast with um questions away from work they're the same in each episode the first one is what advice would you give to your younger self i was very lucky to ultimately um get get an academic job so in that sense i you know i, I would say to my younger self just kind of <laughs> hang in there carry on doing what you're doing and 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 because that's I've, I've been i've been lucky but i think a more general rule is you know if you, if you do if you have belief in what you're doing and you stick to what you're doing even if um you know i think eventually you you know maybe uh, maybe this is too reveals uh, my uh, <laughs> sort of uh, slightly religious upbringing when i was little but uh, you know i believe that eventually some good will come to you eventually if you hang in there and do good work that's a bit uh, maybe that's naive and, and shows some uh, kind of uh, faith in something that you know is is unwarranted and unscientific and so on but i, I would say um, i would say i've been lucky so for me yeah if you could pick any other subject to study at University of Brighton? You don't necessarily have the skills to do it. What would you study? Personally, I, I, I personally would, would take 
English literature. It's something I didn't do at A level. It's something I, I haven't really done a degree. And now I'm finding that, you know, um, lit, increasingly yeah, literature is just such a rich area for thinking about history and so on. So it's a, an area I feel I, I would, um, if, I, if I could have gone back, I would do something like that, which I know is not a million miles away from history. Um, there's important connections between English, but I, I would um, personally, in English literature. Yeah, um, and you haven't been at a university of writing for, for that long, as you said. But can can you pick a favourite place in Sussex? As I, said, I haven't been, I haven't been, um, yeah, I haven't, I haven't been here that long. Um, I do, and so I'm looking forward to kind of exploring this. I suppose, um, you know, I've, I've, yeah, um, I've, I, you know, um, I, I'm, I'm, I, I would say, I would say most my favourite is going to be my times in Brighton when there have been the big demonstrations over Extinction Rebellion, about climate, or about Black Lives Matter. So I would say my favourite places have been on those kind of giant protests. Mm-hmm. Um, if you could give visitors to Brighton in the area of something to do and experience, something that you've experienced um, in those two years, um, where, in the time that you, you know, haven't been restricted by COVID and not, not being able to go out during yeah. lockdown, what, what, yeah. what might they be? Yeah, you're right. You should probably say go out on the South Downs or something, go in the open air and spaces and get it um, at a moment. But I suppose, um, I, I suppose one, there's a very nice little jazz club, which is right near the university, um, uh, uh, Grand Parade near where, where I work called the Verdict um, Jazz Club. And that, I've had some very nice evenings there before, before COVID hit, mm-hmm. um, watching jazz. So I would say, yeah, I would recommend people go there. Cool. Um, tell us something okay. interesting about, <laughs> about you, which a lot of people may not know. Um, when I was when I was young, I had a very rare um, uh, disease, um, Hirschsprung's disease, which meant I'd, I spent about a year in total in my life in in, in hospital, in Great Ormond Street Hospital. Um, and so I think that in the current climate, when we're talking about healthcare and the importance of um, COVID, I, 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 I suppose I, it's important I, for me personally. I, I know how much I owe to uh, the care, the attention, the, the, the skills of uh, of staff at Great Ormond Street Hospital and in across the NHS, I suppose in general. So I would, um, yeah, I would make I would mention that as a as a kind of uh, thing which probably people don't know so much. Yeah. yeah, yeah. If you could pick three people to host their dinner party, past or present, and they're excluding your family, who would they be and why? Yes, I was thinking about this as a historian. This is a uh, this is such a fascinating question to answer, really, because you know there's so many extraordinary people. Uh, who, who've lived and you, you would like to get to, you know, meet and so on. Um, I suppose as a historian, though, I should probably say that, um, you know, I don't know if this is a very different ethical questions, whether one should try and, you know, gather together some of the greatest criminals in, I'm thinking of sort of fascist dictators such as Hitler, Mussolini, uh, Franco or something, um, bring them to a dinner party and kind of... Um, do something uh, to either do a citizen's arrest on them if you felt those, they could bring them to justice or um, uh, give them something unpleasant to eat which uh, would make them very, very ill. Or, um, and so on. I don't know whether you'd have an ethical duty to do that if you could go back in time and do such a dinner party. Um, but that wouldn't be a particularly fun evening. Uh, wouldn't be a particularly fun evening. Um, be maybe historically justified, but it wouldn't be, wouldn't be a fun evening. So I was thinking about this as a historian. I was thinking... If you could bring together three people, perhaps for me as a historian of the Haitian Revolution, it would be fascinating to bring together some of the leaders of the Haitian Revolution together and just see, uh, put them together and just see what they were like. These are people who've defeated, you know, uh, you know the powers of, of, of great uh, empires, British Empire, the, the, the Spanish Empire, the French Empire, 
So it'd be fascinating to meet them, but then my French is probably not good enough to make the most of that. So I've settled on a final thing, final three, um, which would be, um, I think if you could do something, if you could bring together three people for just one evening, you might as well try and uh, make, a, make something come out of this useful and productive. So but I think for me, the greatest film that the, the 20th century it was never made was a film about the, about the Haitian Revolution. Um, and there was a great opportunity when Sergei Eisenstein, a great Soviet film director, uh, met Paul Robeson, um, the great black American, and wanted to bring them, uh, wanted to try and make a film uh, about the Haitian Revolution. It was one of the lifelong ambitions of both of them. So I bring those two together, together with Steelard James, who someone I've studied a lot about, because I think if you had all three of them together, um, they could together in one evening decide, right, let's, let's do this film, let's get this film made. Um, and I think if that, if that film had been made, then, then the Haitian Revolution, which still has never received its, its moment of glory on the, on the big screen in any sense, um, would, would, would finally have a, have a film kind of potentially worthy, I think, of, of it, starring Paul Robeson, directed by Eisenstein and with a film script written by C.L.R. James. So I'll just end it. Yeah, I'll say yeah. that. Sounds good. Okay, uh, Christian, look, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. Really fascinating stuff. Appreciate you um, giving up your time to do that. Um, if you enjoyed this, please do check out the back catalogue, subscribe, leave a review on Apple Podcast. I'll be back next week with Dr. Marlon Moncrief. Thanks for listening. <laughs>